G'day and welcome to Green and Gold Rugby Podslam 91. It's Matt Rowley, your host. We're brought to you, as usual, by strike.com.au, Australia's biggest supplier of Bluetooth car kits and reversing cameras. Joining me today, I've got some of the regular crew. So I've got Scott Allen. G'day, Scott. Hi, Matt. Hi, everyone. Yeah. Lots to talk about tonight, so it'll be good. Yes. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a fair bit of action tonight. It's been a bit thin up until this week, I felt. And I know he's chomping at the bit to talk about some of that later on. Is Hugh. G'day, Hugh. G'day guys. Yep, it's a Waratahs winning week, so it's a good week. So that's all I care about. <laughs> they, they don't come time. around too often. Yeah, the only times I get you on, mate, because then I know you're, you're, you're pumped. Um, <laughs> but look, let's, let's go to our um, guest tonight. So I'm sure he doesn't need a whole lot of introduction. Um, Australia's uh, finest referee for a long time, I would say, is uh, Stu Dick- now retired, Stu Dickinson, mate. How are you? I'm well, Matt. You good self? Yeah, very well, thanks, mate. Um, so... What are you doing now, mate, if you're not refereeing anymore? Uh, well, I, I finished up. I came up to Brisbane and uh, so I brought the family away for, for 12 months or so and, uh, and that role's completed. So I'm starting with a, it started with a new company last week, actually, and uh, heading back to Sydney um, about mid-March, actually. So I uh, okay. so started with a new consulting firm called JMJ. So um, so really good opportunity and good role and looking forward to, um, to, uh, to, to getting back to Sydney and family and friends and, and everything else. Good one. And so, and what, what sort of, is it in a, a particular sector or is it doing a particular thing? Yeah, look, it's around uh, these uh, enterprise transformation, basically. So it's a management consulting firm. So they're dealing primarily in high-performance uh, teams and also uh, uh, a lot of uh, space around uh, safety. So they've, they've been around for about 25 years, American-based company. And they're uh, and they're dealing primarily at the moment in the mining, oil, and, and gas industry. So, really exciting company, really good uh, good people, really good culture. And uh, as I said, based around that high performance and and safety. So, working with companies to um, to address safety issues and and putting in in, in plans and programs around uh, around safety to help uh, help organisations. And in getting that that role, is it you know is it, was it your uh, work as a referee that you know, kind of, uh, you know, was it those, the skills that you had there or was it other skill sets that you had prior to that? I mean, how did that... Yeah, happen? well, I think it was uh, in talking with John, who's the, the director here, it actually was quite interesting Trump up one for technology because uh, actually uh, he uh, picked up my uh, CV through LinkedIn so uh, and had a look at the background there and he said for him it was very much the fact that I'd worked in policing and then I had the background in uh, in logistics and manufacturing and then obviously the refereeing side of things, which was all around that, uh, I guess, management of, of people and, and processes and uh, uh, and then being able to, you know, represent yourself and, a, and, and, and your country and, and brand, I suppose, mm-hmm. and those pers- personal disciplines. So yeah. it all sort of came together to, to be a nice package at the end. Oh, good one. Okay. Well, it's great to hear. Um, mate, we thought we'd start off by going back to the beginning and um, just sort of ask you, you know, you know, how did you get into rugby and then how did you get into refing? Uh, well, look, I, I started playing uh, when I was about four or five uh, and we played uh, at Beecroft, so Benny Robinson, Matt Burke, a lot of those guys uh, went through there, Dean Mum and, 
and crew. So, uh, so played down there at uh, Beecroft Pennant Hills, um, and and then played a, a bit of um, I suppose that local footy with, uh, with with a couple of other teams as well. After that, and then then went to high school and and played there as well. So I went to Whipping Boys High, and basically uh, were playing um, one of the games. Uh, when I was about 11, we were playing a sevens tournament with Beecroft and referee didn't turn up, so they said, oh, who wants to have a go? So I said, why not? Uh, and so I enjoyed that. And then so once I got to high school, I did my um, referees course through uh, Eastwood District Association and I basically played school footy on a Wednesday and refereed on a, on a Saturday, so got the best of both worlds. Oh, great. And so when did you, and how did you, I mean, well, what was the timing of it? So, and how did it kind of kick in? So... <clears throat> I guess what I'm intrigued with is, you know, how you kind of get to that point where, you know, it's, you know, you're basically a, a pro ref. Oh, well, I mean, to, to finish up the footy, I suppose, and I, I played, you know, first 15 at school and, and a little bit of rep football, but at the end of the day, I was enjoying both, but uh, but I think you've also, at some point in time, you've got to have a, a good hard look at yourself, and I said, well, I'm never going to play with the Wallabies as much as uh, we all want to play at the highest level, but I thought the refereeing side of things would go well. So I played a couple of years of Colts um, down at Eastwood uh, with um, Dick Harry and a few of the boys, and uh, and then I joined the police force in that time as well. So one of the things was you you know didn't want to get injured playing because it set you back at the the course you're at at the academy, mm-hmm. as well as just the timing, being able to get shifts and all those sort of things. So once I played those couple of years of Colts and and still did a bit of refereeing in that time, just basically made a decision to retire completely and and keep going with the referee. Okay. Uh, and, and then it worked out well. So like all those things, the pathway is the same as the players where you just start off at, at whatever level you are and then um, the, the selectors will see you and coaches and so on and uh, and then you learn a bit more and then manage to make your way up. And uh, so from my point of view, I was able to uh, to move through the ranks pretty quickly and, and then get into first grade and, um, and then move on to representative games and then I guess I, I, I was in the right place at the right time. In terms of uh, of refereeing, then the game went professional, and it was a good opportunity to um to, to take that journey. Okay, good one. Um, so I'm going to put something to you and see if if you agree with it. Uh, in, from my perspective, it seemed to me that uh, I mean I always liked watching you as a ref, and it was always a pity bit that we you know in watching Australian games we didn't get you as much. I know it's changed, and people have said now that you know it should just be the best ref, but. In, in, in a lot of the time that you were refing, it was uh, you couldn't have a home ref, so to speak, um, because I felt, and probably just naturally, it seemed to me that you were in tune with an Australian way of looking at the game. So it seemed to me you were quite a technical ref, and that you know you'd pick things up, and you kind of saw that, for example, especially around the breakdown, we all know what an area that is. That you know, from my perspective, I always liked seeing you because you'd kind of pick people up. And by picking people up for the for the first part of the game, then usually that would kind of free things up. Versus, say, and this is my opinion only, versus, say, a Bryce Lawrence, who seems to have a much more, and some other like South African and New Zealand refs who kind of let it, the theory is they're letting it flow a little bit more or let, letting kind of it just go on. But I think by doing that, you know, it can just turn into a big scrap and it can be really, really messy. Um, that's my opinion. It's obviously just two different ways of doing things. Would you recognise that there's a difference there in styles of game and, and, and refereeing? Or do you think, no, that's just, you know, all refs are, are trying to do the same thing? 
Oh, look, I think it's a bit of all of the above. You know, I appreciate the kind comments, but um, I think it's it's a bit like anything with where you've got a set of standards. So, like, teams will go out there and they'll have a plan to say, you know, we've got to do X, Y, and Z and get on top of them physically, mentally, or whatever else it happens to be. And in terms of refereeing, I mean, it's it, it's very much about setting up structures. Yeah. And so we, we had an interesting time in terms of, uh, from the refereeing, the evolution there was that it was... You know, the referees were sort of the ones that, uh, you know, fixed the game. And, and so we, we had to react to what players do. So from my point of view, look, what, what I'd always wanted to do was to see a fair contest. Mm-hmm. Um, and then whether whether it's an even contest, well, the players could sort that out. So, look, I, I would always try and make sure that if blokes were going to kill the ball or be negative, well, then it was a matter of dealing with them now. You didn't always get that right, of course. You know, we all make mistakes and there are times when, geez, you know, could have put the whistle away or whatever else and, and other times where you, you could have got it out. But but by and large, I mean, that was my, my theory on it, to, to set that standard and, and let them know so what they could or couldn't get away with. Uh, and you had some teams respond well and you had others that, that didn't care. So at the end of the day, from a refereeing point of view, we can we can manage so much on the run, um, but 90% of the time or more, the action's already happened. So it's a matter of what's the best way you can deal with that. Sometimes you can play advantage and get on with it, mm-hmm. and other times it's killed the ball and, and, and that's it. So from there, now we look at, you know, in the, in the last couple of years and, and certainly a little bit now where uh, the evolution has been that instead of just making it the referee's responsibility, give everybody ownership so you've got coaches, players, the administrators and the referees all working together to say, well, actually, let's make this a better spectacle because at the end of the day, you can live in your own little world. But, you know, for us in Australia here in particular, we've got the the other codes that we're fighting against. Mm -hmm. And now finally in the Northern Hemisphere and everywhere else, they're seeing that as well. And so you've got a a product to sell. And people don't want to pay good money to see penalties all the time. Well, I mean, that's probably a good segue into your question there, Hugh, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, Stu, you've obviously gone through, uh, you know, a, f- a lot of different periods in the, in the, in the game uh, since your early career through to the late sort of times and especially thinking of the ELVs back in what must have been 2007 yep. and uh, 2008. And looking, but looking at the game now, I mean, do, do you think uh, where the ELVs were pushing it back then, it, was that the right direction or do you think the game's got it sort of right now with the balance of the laws or do you think there should be more changes? Oh, look, I think it was more around whether the ELVs were right or wrong, what it was that needed change. You are doing the same thing, bringing up the same product and, and people were turning off. Uh, and so I, I think the main thing was that we went down a path. I mean, it's a bit like when we started in 96 and, and 97 around that time where we we were at the vanguard of change, really, and so we went right out on a limb, and that was the, the, the I guess, the Australian teams and everybody else and, and the competition to, to let it run and everything else. So I think we're very much back in in that vogue now of of more more play and everything else. I mean, I look back at a bit of the 99 game a little while ago and, uh, and you could see that, that sort of thing where you're getting more recycling of the ball and good running and there was a contest. I think there's probably more framework around that now, which is better, and you've got the team, both teams are trying to be constructive. So I think, I think that's, the, that's the difference we see now. Okay. And, and Scott, I think you had a question that kind of followed up on that around laws and law changes, didn't you? Yeah. Um, so Stu, I mean, we talked to Laurie Fish the other week and you know, we talked through the law management guidelines every year and the fact that referees come out and explain to teams what will be in vogue this year. 
So, and as he said, we fully understand that going in. Um, you know, and then we get people complain in the first few weeks about there's too many penalties, and largely I think because teams are trying to come to terms with how it'll work and they haven't adapted. And the teams that seem to adapt the fastest seem to perform better. Did you, um, I mean, obviously there's lots of press coverage about stoppages in games, etc. In terms of the referees, when you got together every week, is that something you looked at? Or did you say, this is what we want to achieve and it's now up to the teams? Or did you take into account public pressure? Um, no, look, it wasn't so much public pressure. I think, I, I think it became everybody had to have buy-in. And so, like like anything, even in the business world, you know, if you if everyone's got ownership and everyone's heading in the right direction, you've got a common purpose, and everyone sticks to that, then there'll be a teething problem. I mean, you look at check with what they're doing with the Waratahs at the moment; they've now got to change a mindset from what they were in last year, and that's not going to happen in one game. That's going to be an evolution, uh, and so it's no different to the teams when 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 we were dealing with that sort of thing. So, it's about if 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 you've if you've written a particular script or you've got that common purpose, as we said, and that's where you're going to head, then it's up to everybody to deal with that. And then if you're on track and you deal with it, then you find there's some issues because everyone's doing the same, doing doing the right thing and, and the product's not working for argument's sake, then you can go and look at that. But when people go off on their own tangent, be it referees or teams or particular players, and that's allowed to just go off, well, then you've wasted that whole pre-season when um, when you've, you've, as a group, you've got together to get those management guidelines, and the first lot that opts out of it, unless the management's strong enough to say no, come back in the line, then essentially you've just got anarchy. And so, you know, what do you referee today or whatever? That's up to referees staying in line and teams and players staying staying true to the the word that you've uh, and the role that you were going to do. Yeah, yeah, that's good. It was interesting from the weekend that five of the six teams that won conceded the fewer penalties in their game so those teams you know have adapted slightly better and I just wanted to talk about the law trials that we're going through at the moment we go through every now and then yep can you what's the position how far out from a world cup before we actually get to a point of saying well that's it we'll set the rules for the next couple of years so that we have a lead into the world cup well certainly it's probably been about um in previous history now, I don't know whether they've changed it now um, but it's it's been probably uh, about two years out um, if they were going to make any changes, so they have some experimental variations, uh, and certainly that's that's the sort of timing you'd, you'd, you'd want to make that. So I think that's why they're doing these experimental variations now, and they'll make a decision at the end of the season to say, right, well, that worked. I mean, the really positive thing about that from what I've seen is that, that you've got both North and Southern Hemisphere embracing that change um, because you know everybody recognises that, that that the game has to change. Um, because I mean your audience is changing all the time, so uh, so that so that process will have refined itself. And uh, as my understanding, and look, I could well be wrong, but I, I understand that it's uh, at the end of this year that they'll um, they'll either confirm or, um, or or jettison those particular law changes that they're looking at. Um, Stu, I'm going to change the subject a little bit, put it onto a more sort of personal aspect. I've done a little bit of refereeing over the past sort of five or six years and, and I found it uh, very hard to sort of uh, that night and the next day not go through all the decisions I made in my head and the right ones and the wrong ones. Um, I've got a sort of a, it's more of a two-part question. A, I mean, how did you cope with that mental aspect, especially because you were dealing with obviously much more high-stakes stuff than what I was doing and, you know, trying to... Uh, 
get back on the horse, so to speak, next week if, if you'd had uh, you know a few uh, bad decisions the week before. And the second question is, do you still, now looking back on your career, have you know have those moments where you know a the the high points, but also the low points? Do you does that still stay with you? Yeah, well, I suppose probably take the first one. Um, not quite sure that uh, maybe you've seen a few of the mums and dads on the sideline at the under nines or tens. You would think it was a World <laughs> Cup final? Um, <laughs> That's very true. So, uh, look, in terms of that, absolutely, you've always got to review because if you're going to get better, I mean, a you've got to do the review, but b you've got to be in the right mindset to to accept that if you've made a mistake and challenge yourself to get better and that's that's not just refereeing I mean that's that's life in general so that, that transposes itself to everything uh, and so from that point of view absolutely you'd review things and you'd look at them uh, and then you know if you got it wrong well, you've just got to admit that and get on with it and then from from the the second part of the question is uh, yeah definitely there's always things that you can do better and uh, I mean you you look back from when you start to when you finish and, and you're always growing and evolving and, and getting better. And I look at decisions I'd made and say, geez, you know how I could have done that better. I mean, I was only talking to someone the other day. I remember I was up at Ballymore doing a game and um, and we had an injury or something and John Eels was lining up for a kick and I was sort of wandering half, halfway back after the injury and whether he'd thought he'd just get on with the game or whatever else. Anyway, I was probably about five or ten metres from him saying, no, stop, and he's gone through and kicked the ball. And... And so at law, you know, I've said, oh, well, you know, game wasn't started, so you've got to kick it again. And, I mean, you know, the, the, and the, the timing there was you say, well, put your head in, mate, just award the penalty because that's what everybody else saw, that the goal went through and no one cares. So, you know, I guess that probably gets back to that first part about, you know, getting it technically correct versus the game thing. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that was brought, brought home pretty quickly in the week afterwards and you'd have a think about it. So, geez, well, I wouldn't do it that way again. So, you know, it's always that evolution. Stu, did he get the second kick? No, and he missed it, so how bad did that oh. <laughs> I don't That's think he's forgiven me for that either. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and so, mate, you're talking about incidents that you think back on. Um, the, uh, and it's, it's a, it's a, I guess it's a slightly different tangent I'm coming from, which is that I guess what we see as punters is we only see the, you know, we see what's on TV. We see you guys run out. We see you raff the game. You know, there's a little, there's the chat on the field, but we don't see what goes on off the field. Um, just, you know, just how much kind of conversation and contact would you have with teams, and how variable was it? I mean, uh, you know, are different teams really that different, or does everyone kind of approach it in, in, a, in a similar way? Oh, look, it's very much, very much individual things. I mean, and depends on who you who you're travelling with as well. I mean, it's a, a bit like the circus in some ways. You you can you can be on an aeroplane with, uh, you know, one somebody uh, that that's wearing I don't know a Bulls jersey this time, and then you're on an aeroplane somewhere next time, and you're seeing them as a Springbok type thing. So um, it was very much around those personal relationships you build up with guys. Yeah. Some guys are obviously. Uh, didn't want to talk much and then other guys were, were, were good communicators and, and good talkers and, and at the end of the day I think it was a roundabout thing of, of those guys that actually saw the big picture in the whole game of you part of that game um, that you know you, you, you get on well with and, and, and just enjoy that whole ethos of rugby so I mean that was the, the good thing that, that, that I'd enjoyed that, that hadn't changed over that time of uh, even though the game went professional, we, we kept the ethos of you know, um, you know, catching up and having a beer somewhere and, and, and just talking about the rugby things and, and, and life in general. Yeah. Now, mate, there's, there's a lot, um, you know, a, a bit of time's passed and 
there's a lot that's talked about this incident. And so it may be that you just say, well, actually, there was nothing in it. Or it may be you say, well, actually, I'd prefer not to talk about it, whichever you prefer. But um, that, that whole incident with the All Blacks and the scrum penalties in Italy or against Italy. <laughs> <laughs> and now, are you at a point yet where you can talk about this, or uh, you know, you've kind uh, of re- you've retired now, or is it still a murder? No, no, no. I, I could talk about it the night after, you know. So, because yeah. um, what happened? Because because the, the, the rumor is um, is that is it, uh, the, they come they you know came and had a chat to you in like a hotel, or they ex- ex- expressed their displeasure, um, and then Paddy O'Brien got involved um, in the whole thing. Is is, is any of all of that true? Uh, no, well, they didn't talk to me. They, um, no, they, well, Paddy uh, went uh, out of convention and uh, and wanted a, and, and went to a meeting with those guys at, at the hotel, and um, and they decided to put their their point across, um, which he then shared with the media and decided that uh, it had been a poor performance and, um, and and went to the media with that, which was had never been done before. Yeah. Um, without even discussing it with me and just basically uh, um, led me like a lamb to the slaughter into the press, which was you know, highly irregular um, and not acceptable. Uh, and, and I let him know those feelings after a particular period of time and everything else. So uh, it was unacceptable behaviour at the end of the day because depending on which version you looked at, um, you know, they actually had some... Uh, some independent reviews done, and uh, and they said, no, look, you got a couple of them wrong, but by and large, you got everything right. Yeah. Um, and it was interesting to note that, you know, if I had all the problems, all the particular prop from New Zealand didn't get selected for another 12 months. So, I mean, I had no no uh, uh, influence over selections. Um, you know, I'm not going to say that I got every one of them right, but uh, I can tell you I had a number of conversations with colleagues that said, geez, I'm Glad it was you and not me, and I actually, <laughs> I actually agreed with what you did. And then I also had, a, and I wouldn't betray the confidence, but I had a couple of national coaches um, from other countries ring me specifically to say, um, you know, tough decision, but well done. Yeah. Uh, and so again, like those things, it's always a talking point, you know. Yeah. As I said, probably that that bit about the other referees. I suppose everyone's saying, "Thank God it's not me." So, uh, but again, you know, you make decisions based on what you see at the time, yeah. um, and then it's filtered through different people's lenses so the the guys that I spoke that spoke to me were were completely independent mm. uh, and so that's fine and again look life sends little tests along the way and uh, and so that was one of them but uh, look I was happy that um, that I stuck to my guns and, and did what I did yeah. um, and it doesn't become a personal thing it wouldn't matter whether it was the you know, Ireland versus England or whatever else and the other thing that was interesting out of that as well was the uh, the Latin culture where the um, you know, the, the Italians were upset because they thought they deserved a penalty try. Well, at no time did they did they fit the criteria of a penalty try. And then speaking to the, the boys afterwards, they said, oh, well, we, we only pushed a little bit because we thought you'd go under the sticks. So, well, you know, you've, got to, you've got to get them at least past two and a half, three metres yeah. before you can even go there. So that was a learning for them as well. All right. Okay, so they really had them on tape. But, I yeah. mean, did not... So, did, did you know, when you said Paddy and you had a chat afterwards about it sometime later... Did he not see that that really kind of compromised his position by kind of doing all that? Or did he still kind of feel that that was a justified kind of thing to do? Uh, no, look, he apologised for the um, uh, for, for coming out in the press and how, how it was done for that particular process. Mm. Uh, in terms of compromise, well, I mean, that's, yeah, that's not up 
for, for me to yeah. say it was more about just that particular incident. So I accepted that apology. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, mate, look, while we're talking about tough ones, though, um, and ref nightmares, um, the, the, the Tom Carter incident. Now, I, I know you've, you've been moving recently. You haven't even got Foxtel. We had to send you a link. So I know that it was, a, it was an, an incident out of context. You've just seen the replay that we've got on the site at the moment. Um, there's kind of two sets of, you know, two school of thoughts that are going around. One is that you can't hit anyone in the air and that it was a dangerous tackle and he followed it through. Another one which is, well, you know, if uh, if you're not allowed to touch a guy who's in the air, then everyone could go around doing hop, skip and jumps um, and no one would be able to touch him. And that Scott was actually, you know, on his way to, uh, you know, potentially scoring a try. So, you know, what were you supposed to do? So that's the two kind of sets of arguments. How did... How do you see it? Is there a, is there a clear answer to this one? Oh, look, probably not a... Well, well there's a clear answer, if, and it gets back to the thing, the, the point we were talking about before as to what are the overriding instructions for the game, for the players, the teams and the referees. Now, first and foremost, I mean, the, the one thing we do as referees when you're on the field is the first priority above everything else is player safety. So, you know, the first thing, at least we're talking about a tackle that went wrong rather than, you know, Scott Higginbotham having a busted arm or, God forbid, you know, has a has a broken neck or something like that. So, I mean, that's just luck. And, and it's one of those situations where, you know, I guess the world's collided for those guys. Scott's jumping for a ball and, and then Tommy's in a situation where you do I, don't I. Mm. Um, so, so so the first the first question is it's it, it, it's safety. Uh and so even if the guy's in the air, I mean, if I just get forward to your other point, if you get to the situation where guys start running and jumping, well, then you can easily outlaw that with a law change very quickly. The IRB would be able to do that straight away to say that's not in the spirit of the game. I mean, you could penalise that on the field anyway mm. if someone did that, you know, not in the, not in the spirit of poor sportsmanship. Um, but I think, I think the main point is there that the, 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 the law is clear and, and, and the ethos is clear around um, if players are in the air, you know, you've got to be careful. So um, it's a, it was a quick decision for Tom where the guy's in the air. Was he on him pretty quickly? Could he have backed out? Um, I, th- I think two parts at the end. The first part is at, at the end of the day, everyone was safe. There was no intent from Scott Higginbotham to do anything wrong and there was probably no intent from Tom. Um, it's just the way that, that he was in the air and fell on him. Um, and then the, the, the second part, which goes to more of your point about what do you do, I mean, if the... If, if there was a clear edict about, you know, if you've got a guy in there and you turn him over or whatever else and it's a white card or a yellow card or a red card, then the referee has just got to follow that process if they said we want a clear adjudication. Um, so, and then the, uh, then the relevant citing authority can look after the mitigating circumstances later. From a refereeing point of view, you're just dealing in fact, did, was it dangerous and did it fit the criteria of whatever that criteria happens to be for red, yellow or white? Um, certainly in those circumstances there, um, not knowing if the criteria has, has changed too much. I mean, from a game perspective, probably not a bad outcome. No one, uh, no one wanted anyone to get hurt and, and there wasn't any malice in it. But again, that doesn't, doesn't come into the decision-making. Um, so probably a penalty was, was okay. But if you're going to take it to the nth degree, if, if they've got a, um, the, the particular process in place, then whatever criteria that fit into, and I suspect that would probably be um, yellow card at that point in time there, then you know, perhaps I may have, um, may have awarded a yellow card. But from, from Rowan's point of view, first game, handled it well, explained well, and, uh, you know, damned if you do and damned if you don't. 
Yeah, I think everyone's kind of said it's probably line ball between a penalty and a yellow, and you probably could have gone either way. So, um, yeah, fair point. Um, Look, mate, I'm going to finish off with the last question we had. um, I I sent something out to Twitter just before we came on um, who had some questions. Um, And probably the best one here is uh, from Bay35Pablo, who asks, (laughs) um, when you're refing, do you hear, um, you know, how does heckling um, affect you? Does it? Do you just get used to it? Um, and then he followed that up with, um, and can you remember your best heckle? Oh, jeez. Um, oh, look, you, you don't. You don't really hear it yeah. uh, in, in, the, in the motion of the game. The time you will hear it is if you're stopped and there's a penalty kick or, or something like that. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, if it's a quiet moment, you can hear somebody in the crowd. Um, in, terms of, in terms of the best heckle, jeez. Oh, I think the standard one was, you know, get a sun, get a, you know, get a suntan or something like that, you know. Um, <laughs> and um, oh, mate, look, I can't, I can't really uh, think of uh, anything else. Probably plenty of them, you know. Nothing that sticks and, out. Yeah, learn, learn how to bloody referee or whatever else. Was you know, there any the laws? And actually, probably, actually, no, I must say that one, probably one of the best ones was um, when when we started in '96. And down at Canberra Stadium, so you had that changeover with Super League and everything else, and uh, and you had the Rugby League crowd coming across. So of course you had the you know tackle ruck mall situation, and guys behind the last feet. You had you know quiet times in the crowd, with you just hear people going berserk, saying "Get them back to ten at the tackle." So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Um, okay, good one. So, did you have a last thing there, Hugh? <coughs> Oh, quickly! I was going to say, Stu, um, just quickly off the top of your head, best, uh, best stand or country, and and worst worst stadium for refereeing that you experienced. Oh, look, best stadium is um, for me is Millennium Stadium in Cardiff, just because of the history, of the atmosphere, just the noise, the Welsh singing. If you've never been to a game there with the Welsh singing, then uh, um, you know. Do yourself a favour and get there. And for those that have been there and heard it, you'll understand what I'm saying. Uh, and then I think some of the other ones, really, Suncorp Stadium in Brisbane um, is an unbelievable atmosphere. And then those those grounds in South Africa, um, uh, with uh, when you where they're so close to you, um, they're just just amazing. Um, the noise that, that comes from there. I mean, you, you get a full Loftus Versfeld and I, I, I kept telling the people it's like being at a Smurf convention because you've got everybody's <laughs> faces painted blue throughout the whole crowd. So uh, you have a little chuckle to yourself. So, um, uh, you know, so look, they're, they're really good. I mean, look, all, all those grounds when they're full, I mean, those ones that, that in, in Europe there with the, the Six Nations grounds, all the history um, and, and the noise in those grounds. I mean, now Twickenham's finished off where it, where it goes all the way around and it's 82-odd thousand or something. I did, I did a game there with um, Ireland and uh, England. Uh, and it was unbelievable noise. And that was the day Cipriani played and he carved them up, scored 15-odd points or something. Um, but just the noise in that place now is, is just incredible. So, you know, uh, and, and look, I wouldn't say there's any bad grounds because, I mean, you, you know, you're getting to run around on a pitch and do something you enjoy. So uh, it's just, just fantastic, each one for their own different experience. Okay. So very, very blessed to be able to, uh, to get onto all of those grounds. You're just lucky they're not using Concord so much anymore, I guess. 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, Concord wasn't bad in this day, but I mean, we take we took some of the guys through that uh, that were visitors, and, and you drive down Parramatta Road there, and then point out, say, oh look, that's Concord Oval where they played that World Cup semi final. They go, oh my god, unbelievable! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Anyway, mate, look, um, we've taken up a fair slug of your time. Um, no, no problem at all. Thanks for coming on. And uh, I know you're just about to move back down to Sydney. Good luck with the move. Thank you very much. And, uh, yeah, we hope to catch up with you again. again yeah, no, look forward to doing it again. Thanks so much for your time. Thank, thanks, mate. Speak to you later. Cheers. Thanks, thanks, thanks See you here. Scott. Bye. Cheers, you. Good one. All righty. So, um, well, that was uh, a great chat and fascinating. It's fascinating to hear um, and, and good on him for uh, taking us through that whole Italian incident, which we've kind of heard so many rumours about over the years. Good uh, answer, wasn't it? Yes, indeed. It was pretty forthright. Yeah. So can yeah, we no. segue from there into, we talked about the Tom Carter incident. Can we segue into that about that we're using the TMO more this year? Oh yeah! Oh, oh yeah! We should have asked that. God damn! There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, hang on, I was, I was just getting back on the line. Okay. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, yeah. No. Yeah. How are you guys feeling about it? The, the amount that it's getting used. Well, do you know? I reckon save Tom Carter the yellow card because you know this nonsense about Scott Higginbotham jumped into the tackle. Mm-hmm. You know, he actually didn't have the ball when he left the ground. So he was a player in the air. By law, tackle in the air. Was there malice? No way there was malice in that. I mean, it was an, an ugly incident that, as he said, lucky no one got hurt. But, you know, I reckon if they couldn't look at that with the TMO, I reckon the referee and the assistant probably give Tom Carter a yellow card and he didn't deserve one. So yeah. I reckon in that instance it worked really well. But yeah, I agree. It it allows, uh, in cases like that, for everything to calm down a little bit. It takes a little bit of the spider out of the game, gives the refs a, a little bit of a chance to to uh, have a breather and, and, and have a look at it sort of in in the cold light of day, to use an expression. But, I mean, for some of the decisions, yeah, look, I mean, they're starting to use it more and more. I worry that it it, it becomes like what the NRL is now, where almost the default reaction of a referee after a try is to send it upstairs and sort of say... Oh, I think there might have been a forward pass three rucks ago. Um, you know, can we have check that out? I, I hope they don't, you know, use it too much and it interrupts the flow of the game. But as as it is, I think in most cases it, it's been used well and it's been used effectively. I mean, in the Force Bulls game, it disallowed a try because of a you know pretty blatant forward pass. In the Hurricanes Reds, the that sort of little knock on there, which which may well have saved the Reds bacon. Mm. Um, it's. I think it's by and large been used well. I mean, there was a controversial incident in the Blues Crusaders game where it was a very marginal call. I'm not sure whether that decision was the correct one, but um, I mean, I, I think it's certainly giving the referees a little bit more freedom at the moment. Anyway, well, those those two um, examples you cited, I was going to bring up, and I mean, you know, just by eye, r- running at full pace. I don't think. Well, I don't think either of those incidents were going to, would have been brought back. No, no. Yeah. The, the Reds. The Reds one was the referee when he went upstairs, right. asked about that particular thing. Okay. But I don't think the forward pass was going to be. No. But I, I mean, think that, was, but, that but was all over. It's a different thing, though, that, that he thought, hmm, something might have happened there, I wasn't completely sure, and whether he would have... I mean, in my sense was that both of those things, you know, that, that neither of those things were going to stop those tries without the TMO. Well, definitely the Blues one wasn't. That, seemed, that was definitely news. Um, my sense was the Hurricanes one... 
that wasn't the decision that everyone thought was going to close it in. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, um, but it is interesting. It's definitely making differences in games, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think it, I think it's getting rid of, and we you know, the cricket terminology is try and get rid of the howlers. Mm. So you know, I think in both the the bulls forward pass and the hurricanes, when you looked at it closely, you know they weren't tries. Yeah. Because of the infringements, the blues one year could have gone fifty fifty. Mm. Um, but so what do we spend? We spend what an extra minute each occasion to get it right. That's not so bad. Mm. Well, it's, it's interesting, though, because I think what used to happen is we would just go with, with each of those things, which I don't know if I would have called either of those a howler, though. I think you just would have said, oh, line ball, you know, yeah, okay, but, you know, it's, you know the play's gone on, it's a try, they fall either yeah. way, you know? It's kind of like, you know, it, it, in the past, it just would have been, well, you know, that, you know it breaks both ways. Um, in the yeah. howler stakes, I, I don't think they would have been there, but you would have just said play on. But at the end of the day, you're right. I guess they're getting them right. It's hard to argue against it. It is just it, another break, though, isn't it? It's it's amazing what you see, what you think you see, and then when you look at it closely, what really happened. Mm. I make the mistake all the time. The guy who I'm in two weeks in a row, who I've been really surprised, Michael Checker, he has got really upset about two refereeing decisions. Yeah, he did, didn't he? And and the first one was, you know, he claimed in the press conference. I tell you, he was livid that Adam Ashley Cooper had been taken out late um, by the Reds player, which was Mike Harris, and with no arms, a shoulder charge. When you look at it, you know, that certainly wasn't the case. No one was cited because, you know, I think Checker got it wrong. But he was convinced, 100% convinced, that Adam Ashley Cooper had been taken out. In fact, it turns out Michael Hooper did the damage. And yet, and last week... He was convinced that the yellow card for Tatafe Plot an hour was wrong because it was a collapsed mall. When you listen to the audio, it's completely the opposite. The referee says very clearly, it wasn't a mall, I didn't call the mall. And he explained it to Dave Dennis. But, but Michael Checker, and you see it live, fair enough, you take a view. But I've been really surprised at the first two weeks how he's gone after the referee to a certain extent without naming them and saying it's a terrible decision. But he said, I'm very unhappy. Mm. And yet in the cold, hard light of day, I wonder, is he sitting there going, well, maybe I should just shut up a little bit next week? Because <laughs> yeah. he got it wrong both times. Something tells me that Michael Checker's uh, um, anger maybe doesn't work that way. Um, he's might, fairly, he's but, a fairly passionate bloke, isn't yes, he? Yes, there might not be a little person, yeah, that little thing inside his head. Uh, and maybe that's why he, he kind of gets uh, results sometimes, I guess. I don't know. But um, look... Should we go back then and kind of walk through the games um, uh, from the weekend and kind of pick up the talking points as we go? Um, so uh, on the weekend, uh, there was the Blues Crusaders game. Um, you know, I didn't want to spend too much time on this except to say that I did tip it. Um, maybe, not hey. qu- maybe not quite that score. <coughs> seven out of seven. <coughs> Oh, okay. Oh, sorry. What was that? Um, <laughs> no, uh, and I guess the question is, are the Blues going to be able to keep this up? And, and, and was this just the first Crusaders game back and were they just a bit rusty? Or is this a completely different change? Any of you guys got a view on that? Yeah, I do. I, I think the Blues are the real deal this year. Um, the Crusaders are traditionally slow starters, so I wouldn't read too much into their efforts. Mm. Um, they generally take three or four rounds to really hit their stride, and then they even, inevitably play the Waratahs in round five and, and wipe us off the field. Mm. Um, but the Blues uh, last week put, put away a Hurricanes team that are half decent. I don't think they're particularly good. 
Um, but this week they backed it up, and they, I think they still haven't conceded the try. Um, no, they have, sorry. No, they conceded the few tries in their first game. But their defence has shored up a lot from last year. They've got Sir John Kerwin there now, who's seemingly turned them around. And, and I think they've recruited or certainly found, as the New Zealanders tend to do, a lot of blokes that are absolutely ball terrors. I mean, the, the Charles Pietau, who's the, who's the fullback, um, Frank Halley and George Mawala on the wings, these big brutish island blokes, um, Francis Saeli in the centres, um, and then, you know, some, some classy blokes in the pack as well. Stephen Lutua, who's the blind side, all really good, raw, young blokes, but they're, they're, I think they'll go a long way this year. Um, okay, so let's move on from that, though. I mean, I, 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 do, I agree. I think they look like they're a different team, so we'll see how that goes. Um, unfortunately, we, we needed an easy beat from New Zealand. <laughs> they seem to be rapidly disappearing. Um, okay, so then we had the Tars against the Rebels, the Waratahs yet again, uh, second-half performance, uh, but this time actually managing to win the game with it um, against the Rebels. I mean, because the thing I think I guess I'll throw up here I mentioned it in, um, in, in the Team of the Week post, was that uh, we've got a Team of the Week that's pretty much half Rebels um, and a hell of a lot of Force players with one or two Waratahs and Reds thrown in, and it was the Waratahs and Reds who actually won. Um, so there were a lot of good performances here from the Rebels, yet uh, the Waratahs uh, managed to put it together and actually, you know, they, they were looking for a bonus point in the end, um, 31-26. Um, Baba, I know you were there. How was it live? I was there. We've yes. got a picture of you, um, actually. Um, there's a picture pic- of me. Yeah, there's a picture. You haven't looked at Moses' uh, slideshow. Oh, no, I haven't actually. I should check you that need out. To. It's probably yeah. Yeah, it was half time, so I was relatively uh, in a pretty good state at that point. But um, it, look, it was an interesting game. I mean, the crowd was low. It was eleven thousand two hundred, which is the lowest in Waratah history. Um, the background for those non-Sydney siders was it was absolutely pissing rain until about 15, 20 minutes before kickoff, um, and it was cold and it was windy, and I suggest a lot of the Tars fan base, myself included, made the decision that we were going to watch it from the pub. Yeah. Uh, but uh, because we live quite close to the ground, the weather changed and we managed to take ourselves in there. Um, the crowd was still fairly vocal, though, which is unusual for a Tars game. But I think the thing about this performance that, that really pleased me was at, at halftime, the stakes were high. They were down by 10 points, and they weren't playing particularly well. The Rebels were right on top. There was a low crowd. They'd lost the first game. You know, it was you wouldn't say the season was on the line, but it was certainly a big moment for them. They really needed to come out and show something in that second half, not only for the fans, but just for themselves, for their own self-confidence. And I thought the second half was a really polished performance. It was that the tries were done through good team build-up, good uh, linking play between forwards and backs, a lot of good offloads in tackles, and it was built on a fairly solid defensive foundation. Uh, there's a lot to like there. It's just whether they can put it together for, for 80 minutes, but I'd be interested to see what you guys thought of it. So, Scott, you uh, last week had a lot to say about the Tars shape. Did, did it change um, for you at all this week? Uh, yeah, it did change a little bit, yes. So what they did this week... Sorry, I thought the first half they were just the same. Mm. It was. I, I honestly thought this isn't going to happen for the Tars today. The Rebels are going to beat them and then there'll be all hell to pay and people will be screaming blue murder. But in the second half, what they did, they got their support runners a little bit closer. Mm. So did you notice the offloads started happening? Yeah. So 
16 offloads in the match, but 11 of those in the second half. Right. And that's just because they brought guys in a little bit closer. They played a little bit tighter. So that's where I think you know there's a little bit of tweaking with their game plan to go on. Mm. I still think they've got a problem at the breakdown through the whole game, and, and I think that's the Tars back row. Uh, Dennis and, and Palu aren't doing enough to help Hooper at the breakdown. Right. I, I think he's, he's not left on his own completely, but he's having to do too much, and that's not Hooper's best game, being in there tight. So too many times their ball got slowed down, a couple of turnovers, um, but I, I could see the tweaks wet conditions, so maybe they had talked about that. What I really liked was, and Checker said it at half-time, and he said, we can't play at the pace of the game. We've got to change the pace and lift the pace. And they really did. I thought that second half was really good from the Tars. Um, not only entertaining rugby, but they started to put it together. They looked like a team who'd played seven or eight games together rather than effectively one game together. Mm. So I, I thought the second half was really good, and I think... If you look at where they've gone, um, I think Tars supporters have got to be feel pretty positive about that. Big, big challenge this week. Obviously, they will find out whether it's really on the right track when they play the Brumbies, who I think are the, so far the best Australian team in the conference. Mm. But, but I, I thought there was enough there. Um, look, I thought uh, Ben Robertson great to see him playing really well. But I thought the second rowers, um, Douglas and Chapman, were really good. And I really liked Paddy Ryan with his limited time. I'd be very surprised if he's not in the starting lineup this week. Mm. Well, he definitely took his uh, opportunities, didn't he? Yeah. Um, but for the Rebels, gee, you know, they're, they, they're just, they seem to be going through the motions. They seem to be playing a game where it's retain the ball for as long as you can, and they have multiple possessions where they they just continued with seven eight nine ten eleven phases they really weren't going anywhere and that then ended up with a recognition from Beale and O'Connor that we're not getting anywhere here let's put a chip kick in mm. which is probably worse than hanging onto the ball given the results mm. um <laughs> be great if they could leave those alone they just don't look like they have a game plan at the moment or that they're all on the same page they just seem to be holding the ball and waiting for something to happen rather than making it happen. Mm. Certainly in the second half, I saw the Tars making something happen and I liked how they were playing. Yeah, yeah and, and certainly the Rebels' depth doesn't help them. I mean, you saw how much the game changed when the Waratahs bench came on. Play, you know, Ben Volavola made a real difference at fullback. As you say, Paddy Ryan you know, had a good influence. A guy like Lepetti Tamani, I thought, made a bit of an impact as well. And even in the last few minutes, uh, Matt Lucas, the, the young halfback, also you know, had, had a pretty good influence. But on the Rebels' side of things, you know, I'd, there's a few players that came off and you go, oh, geez, I don't know if the replacement's quite... Quite up to it. A guy like Shota Hori, who had a few good touches, but I'm not quite sure if he's he, he's up to it. Um, and you know, even some of the other back rowers who are just you know, it, it, it just clearly their intensity dropped off in those last twenty minutes, and that was where the Waratahs really came out and won the game. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, pretty much echo both of your guys' thoughts there. I, for me, the thing that's really sticking out, um, especially in that second half, was the offload game which I don't remember, uh, you know, Waratahs playing like that for quite a while. In fact, I, I don't remember too many Australian sides doing it very well. 
um, for, for for a long time. So, and it's, it's that sort of game plan that doesn't seem to you know it, it just it's just using a, a structure where you know people are kind of um, backing up from depth, providing options. Um, and that sort of thing, and it just the whole team all of a sudden can kind of start to play around that, make space behind, you know, and that's where the sort of situations where Drew Mitchell starts to look dangerous, you know, where he can come on a short pass and he's behind the defence and um, he can, uh, he, you know, he can, he can really make inroads, and that's what they were really doing in the second half, um, and it kind of makes me wonder if that's what, you know, Cheek has been trying to get them to work through, and maybe they're just maybe just starting to put it together. Um, so it'd be interesting yeah. to see going forward. Um, if you look, if you look at their back row mix, that game plan makes sense. As I say, yeah. I don't think their back row is breakdown focused. No. Um, so don't go into breakdowns. Offload the ball. Yeah. Try and avoid the breakdowns as much as you can. Keep the ball in play. That suits their back row. So. I can see that all gelling together. I, I just don't think they're quite there at the moment. They need a slightly better balance between uh, running it. But just can I just, on the, that game, I've just looked for the first time on our site at the pictures. Are these pictures all from Moses? They are. They are fantastic. They're not bad, are they? Guys, if you haven't looked at it, go to our site and have a look. This is fantastic. I think that's that's Moses' first game as a photographer, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And and you should see him. He he was getting heckled from the sideline for having uh, lens envy. Um, <laughs> there's, there's, there's a picture of him on Facebook, uh, and it's got him. You know, most guys you see there with these lenses that are like three feet long, and he's there with you know with your three hundred mil SLR. But um, he's got a new piece of kit, and um, it was so funny. So it was it was myself and Moses and Cyclo. Uh, watched the game. Well, Cycle and I watched the game at the pub. So Moses turned up afterwards, and um, he literally took eight hundred shots. And uh, what you see there are the, are the crop of those, and uh, a lot of them had to be cut down. But yeah, he's got a couple. I mean, those ones with Tom Kingston chasing down Scott Higginbottom are uh, fantastic. They are great photos. Yeah, I'm yeah. really, really liking those. Yeah, and then there's some drunken bum in the crowd wearing a, a flannel. I didn't see that. Where I just tried to find. I can't that, see actually. that. <laughs> yeah, I think someone's must have censored it and taken has, it down. Has it been thankfully. taken out? Oh, right. Thankfully, okay. <laughs> okay you, you're lucky. I can send <laughs> yes. it to you, mate. All right. So anyway, and just to wrap that one up, and the rebels have now got a bit of a headache because um, Beal is out for four weeks at least with a busted hand. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, that's kind of half their firepower gone. Um, he ran for them more than anyone else did in the rest of the uh, Australian conference. Um, so, I mean, he was having a, a big, big impact. Um, so the loss of him is really, ooh, that's, uh, that's not good. So um, we'll see. I'm just having a look here at uh, what their next fixture is. Is it here? Rebels. Oh, okay. So they've got the Reds at home this weekend, right? Okay. Anyway, that's going to be interesting. So anyway, so that was the that was the Waratahs um, and the Rebels. Speaking of the Reds, um, that was obviously the next game where the Reds triumphed eighteen twelve uh, over the Hurricanes. It was actually a pretty close fought thing, actually, for most of the game. Uh, for a lot of the game, it was never. I didn't think it was clear. Um, Scott, you were there. What was your take on it, mate? What are you talking about? Two tries to nil. Never in doubt. <laughs> I'm glad you felt that way. <laughs> oh, no, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, how did I feel about it? That's the Reds' third competition game. Looked to me like it was their first. They they still, they're not out of first gear at the moment, I don't think. Um, combinations aren't working. They're pushing things a little too much. All credit to them. 
for defending that because really the Canes should have won that game. Mm. Um, Barrett only kicked four out of seven, but give the Reds the credit, they held the Canes to zero tries, which is I think the first time since 2011. They scrambled really well. They made some mistakes in defence, yes, um, but to hold them out, you know, pretty good. Uh, the Reds' line-out was better this week, but still only 69% clean ball, so they've got some work to do. Um, the good news for the Reds is that they're not playing well, and yet they've won two out of three games, and they now come into the Rebels and the Force. Gives them a little bit of time, and over the next two to three weeks, they're going to get back Anthony Fienga, James Horwell, uh, and Will Genia. They may have another Genia this week anyway, but um, Will should be back over the next two to three weeks. So they're hanging in there. They're certainly not playing well. Mm. So, that's the thing. I mean, as you're right, Scott. I mean, I, I, I agree with you that they're not. The last couple of weeks haven't been, you know, there hasn't been a long list of positives. Um, I sort of can't comment too much on this game because by that point, the victory champagne had well and truly been opened in in Sydney. So, um, but I do remember certain aspects of it. Um, I think the thing that's the key is though they're still picking up points. They've still that's another four points, and they're two from three, and and they're and they're on their way. And that's a and again, you'd think that with the Rebels without Beal and the Force, uh, two games that you'd expect them to win. So you know, touch wood for them, they'll be. F- four from five, and with some of their stars coming back. The, the one thing I would say, this week, Quade Cooper disappointed me. I was hoping after last week where he just started to show some signs that, you know, the Quade of old is coming back. This week, I think, was a step back. He went back to some of his old habits, which, uh, again, make it a more interesting game to watch, I suppose, for the neutral. But, um, yeah, I think it, it was a bit of a worrying sign, and I hope he can find a bit more confidence in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I could have... Go ahead, Scott. That's interesting because you watch the game again um, and I would have said the same thing. And again, this is, you watch the game once, then you watch it again and you look, you rewind and whatever. Cooper made three mistakes. He threw a pass that if Barrett had intercepted it, probably someone would have run him down, but he shouldn't have thrown the pass in the first place. Uh, And he shouldn't have called the fact that take the quick tap. They should have just settled it down, and that's part of where I think the Reds are just lacking a little bit of composure at the moment. And he missed touch twice. That was it. Defended really well, controlled the game really well. It's guys outside him that are making the mistakes, not Cooper. So that, um, that, that intercept- I'll have to go and reworks then, because uh, uh, that's, that's, that's good news if that's the case. Well, well I was surprised, because I, I came away from there as well thinking, gee, like you, that's a step back for Cooper. And then having watched it and analysed it, thought, you know what? It's not Cooper, it's it's a little wider. And you know what? I think they're really missing Anthony Fienga. Just to control things a little bit, they're definitely missing Genia. That's a, that's a given. But they're also missing Horwell's leadership just to settle things down. They're, they're not doing stupid things. They're just pushing the last pass and the last offload. Whereas if you know, take the decision, just take it in. You know, you don't have to play helter-skelter rugby all the time, and you would normally expect Cooper to be the one who plays the helter-skelter rugby. It's actually other guys that are doing, making the mistakes. Yeah, I mean, if you think about him being sandwiched between those two players of Fayenga and, and, and uh, Genia, 
um, I think that, that, that it gives him kind of a crutch which he can then you know re- rely on, right? And then also you've got those two threats um, on both sides of him that the defence has to worry about, um, which I guess they're, they're not having to quite so much at the moment. Yeah, the, it just the feel that they're giving me at the moment is that they just you know they're, they're, and they are missing two or three strike players who can just um, you know bend or break the line. Um, you know, or put in a big tackle here or there, and that just kind of lifts the whole team. Otherwise, it, it looks like largely the B team, um, you know, kind of grinding away and grinding out wins and here and there, but just not having that extra bit, uh, which, you know, which then inspires the rest of the team um, yeah. is, is, is kind of how it's looking. So, but having, like, having said that, if you had to rate the Australian fly halves that played this week, I would put Beal first, Foley second, Cooper third. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not not suggesting. Oh, C.S. Eberson, he's not Australian, but if you know, he he didn't have a great game, but it wasn't as bad as what I thought it was. It's just, yeah, one man doesn't make a team. That may be different when you have Will Guinea playing because he probably does make the Reds, and they are seriously missing him at the moment. Mm. And this week it could be worse because. It looks like Ben Lucas has hurt his shoulder and may be out. And that'll mean Nick Frisbee starting and Nigel Guinea, Will Guinea's younger brother, will probably be, in fact, he will be, if that's the case, um, on the bench. But you've got big raps on uh, the other Guinea brother, though, have you not, Scott? But you think it's a bit early for him? Oh, loads of potential. Mm. Loads of potential. He, he, he works harder than Will used to when he was a young guy. Um, Will, obviously, oh, well, he has more natural talent. Nigel, yeah, he's got the capability, but it's a massive step up. Mm. I mean, he came from, he was playing for my club team last year and went over to the to Perth to try and get a contract with the force, which didn't work out, got no contract, he's come back. And he's done pre-season training with the Reds in their Reds college. But, you know, he, he hasn't played anything more than a Premier Grade game. That's his highest level. Sorry, that's not true. He came off the bench last week for Queensland A. He started for Queensland A last week. And by all reports, I haven't seen the video yet, but played quite well. It's a massive step up to mm. go into you know, Super Rugby. And even Will Genny with all his talent, when he first played Super Rugby, that's a big step. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I don't think Frisbee's there yet. He's still trying to find his feet. So I, the Reds are going to, I think, unless Ben Lucas is, makes a miraculous recovery, are going to go into this week with two rookies. Right. Okay. Well, that's not going to help. But I'm going to use one of the names you mentioned just before that as a bit of a segue into the uh, last Aussie game, which was the uh, force away to the Bulls. Um, and C.S. Everson. I thought that was a really fascinating thing to watch where, I mean, it was quite literally, you know, a South African, you know, transplanted into an Australian team. Um, and to see him, you know, it just it just showed, and the commentators even mentioned it, you know, to have somebody who could, you know, using the drop goal strategy. Um, I think, did he hit three, I think, in the end? Um, and really... No, made... he, hit, he hit two, and I think the third one's going to be in shockers of the week. Okay, that's right. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um but th- those two that he took, you know, just kept the, the scoreboard ticking, kept the force in touch, and then, you know, they got the uh, breakaway try and everything else. And, you know, with most of us thinking that, you know, 
you know, this was going to be an absolute blitz um, from the Bulls. Um, they really kept themselves in touch. And I think apart from a bit of a weird call in the very last minute, you know, they were within three points and really should have walked away with a force, as we call it, um, with a losing bonus point. Um, well, uh, well I'm gonna, I don't know what else analysis you had to add there, uh, mm. Matt, but I'm going to go further. They should have won that game. You, you were up yeah. by seven with 10 minutes to play. Um, you know, you put yourself in that position. You've got to convert the four points, and in the end, not walking away with a bonus point. Well, it was a, it was an implosion. There's nothing more to it. Mm. Um, but I don't know what you were going to say after that. Obviously, well, no, but, but looking at the trajectory that they'd been on, right? I think most of us would yeah. have thought that uh, it was going to be, uh, it was, it was going to get ugly there. So, um, and I mean, I think they, they, they managed to do it really well. And that, I guess, the point I was making about Everson's and, and his drop goals was, you know, managing just to not let the Bulls get away. Um, in, in, in that first half um, is really important because I think, you know, once they get their tails up at home, you know, anything could happen. Um, and they managed just to keep the crowd quiet. And it was just interesting to see that little tactic, one that we don't often take um, as, as, as a country routinely, um, just to see that happen. But, I mean, there were a number of players who had and made their way into the, the uh, players of the week. Um, I'm going to kick off with um, Hugh McMenamin who I thought had an absolute barnstorming game at, at, uh, at, at lock. Um, you know, he was making dominant tackles. He was making a pest of himself at the breakdown. He was giving nice, clean ball off the top of the line out. Um, you could kind of see him giving leadership in the pack around the field. Um, he really stepped up, I thought. And, you know, dare I say it, was heading towards the sort of role that Sharpie was even playing. Um, not quite there, but I thought, you know, that sort of groove that he was managing to give to the force, a big step up for him. What um, giving, was he giving post-match interviews where he dropped the apologised to... <laughs> oh, I'm just thinking the role that Sharpie used to play at the force. Just giving <laughs> yeah. disappointed post-match interviews. Um, oh, there must have been that other one. <laughs> yeah, no, he, he didn't need to have that. He, he didn't uh, take that role just yet. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you guys uh, spot some other performances there, other players. Uh, Scott, I, I know you had a couple of guys you, you spotted. Yeah, well, just go back to Podcar or Podslam 1 for the year, and I told you Hugh McMenamin would be a wallaby this year. Yeah, <laughs> you did. <laughs> he, he added the, the vigour, the toughness that, you know, we, we, when... Dan Vickerman came back from England. We all said, "Oh, this is going to be great. You know, this will this will be good for Australian rugby." Well, Hugh McMenamin is the same. Yeah, he got penalised for a, a shoulder charge, which was a shoulder charge. But you know, he's the tough man that I think the Wallaby Pack needs. Mm. Um, I thought Angus Cottrell, the four six. Yeah, he he is stepping up. He's a young guy. In his second year, and last year he started in the EPS contract and got a full contract because he played a number of games. He's now keeping Ben McCalman or um, Richard Brown on the bench. Yep. This is a guy who's 23 years old in you know, effectively his first full year of Super Rugby. He was around last year. I thought he played really well. Um, I thought Nathan Charles was really good. Yes. As long as he stops chip kicking the ball, <laughs> it, came, it came off. Though, I just, I just about chop his foot off if he was playing for me. <laughs> it came, or there'd be a few legless people over at the Brumbies at the moment if that was the case. <laughs> but, um, but you know, I, yeah. I think the force, I think the force is struggling to work out what's their best team, or what's the game plan that suits them best. Mm. Let alone what to do about different oppositions. So one of the things that the Reds 
in particular do is they change the game plan depending on who the opposition are. Teams like the Brumbies, you know, they pretty much say play the same game plan and, and they just play it very well. And they say, we, you, we know that the opposition knows what we're doing, but we'll play it better than they can deal with. I don't know the force know their game plan yet and I, I don't think they know their team. I think Eberson made a, a good difference, but his general play kicking was ordinary. Really ordinary. Well, he definitely he definitely played the uh, he kept it within the tram lines, didn't he? But I'll, I'll hand over to you in a, in a, in a second, Baba. But I just wonder if they're onto something here, though. With because one of the things that the force have always done is they've always, or they did last year, for example, was hold on to enormous amounts of ball, um, and they would you know literally you know it, it was like a little terrier dry humping your leg down in there in the opposition's half, um, sometimes hovering around the twenty two. Um, between the 22 and the halfway line, and just grinding away and grinding, you know, phase after phase after phase, and walking away with nothing. Or, or quite often it would be, you know, a, a breakaway try down the other end, or you know, a, a penalty, and they're defending from their 22. Um, and I just wonder if they've, and because you know they basically haven't had any, um, you know, any cut through in the backs. Um, and I just wonder if. That little tactic of, okay, as soon as we get to anywhere near your 22, you know, we're ready to drop a goal and we'll take three points, turn around and come back and do it again. I just wonder if that might be a drought breaker for them. It's not rocket science. It's something the Saffirs have been doing for years um, and, and some Northern Hemisphere, you know, uh, teams as well. You know, that just might work for them. And if they can start to get the, you know, uh, you know the, the points or the, the, the scoreboard working in their favour, maybe that can pressurise some defences open and I don't know maybe they can see more fruit but uh, I just wondered if we saw a glimmer of what might be in their future there with uh, just taking taking points that are on offer but um, anyway Hugh I cut it across you would you have to say mate? Oh no that's okay um, you know what I was going to say was um, you know I can't add much to what you guys so I agree with pretty much all of it um, I think the four showed enough that game to let me make me believe that they're going to beat a couple of good teams this year uh, I think they'll struggle in some weeks, and they'll. But some weeks they're going to come out, and and it's. I know it's going to be an Australian team, and it's probably going to be the Waratahs that are going to get ambushed. They're going to go over to the west, and it's going to. You're going to think, oh, you know, force this will be easy, and they'll come out and and play. And it happened last year with the Reds as well. The Reds got beaten by almost fifty, I think, if if I recall correctly, by the force. Um, so I think that's going to happen to a couple of teams, but I can't see them again getting getting off the bottom of the table, but. Well, see, all they, they, all they yeah. need to do is find a way of, you know, of, t- of converting those forces into a win, you know, converting half of those into a win. And I just think, you know, like, you know, a couple of droppies um, could do it. Um, so we'll see. I don't know. It's, it maybe yeah. sounds a bit too simplistic, but, you know, they just need something to break that drought for them, don't they? They, uh, they need to find their thing. And if yeah. it's drop goals, so be it. But yeah. I don't think they know what their thing is at the moment. I think they need to do that. One guy who needs to lift his game seriously is uh, the Honey Badger. He was terrible, disgracefully. Uh, sorry, defensively. Mm. He let in, let in two tries, one of which uh, Richard Brown could share the responsibility, and then gave away a ridiculous penalty from which the Bulls scored their match-winning try. Mm. He was just ordinary. Well, I, th- I thought he had a lot of bustle. He had some, but I think what you're talking about is decision making was pretty ordinary. That that first yeah. try, that was Richard Brown all the way, though. I mean, you well, can well, no, it wasn't. Brown double marked. No, no, Yo, I, I, Dub- he double marked, but but watch where 
Cummins goes ahead of the line. When you're outnumbered, mm-hmm. you have to stay back behind the line and actually move sideways. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a it's a pretty simple jockey system. He actually went ahead of the line. But so he, Richard Brown made a mistake, mm-hmm. but he got he he didn't you know even give Richard Brown any chance to cover up for that. Yeah, I, well, I mean, I think well, Brown opened up that hole which Stain which Stain wandered through, and I thought uh, the Badger was still marking the winger. So yeah, but he would have been marking the winger if he hadn't been five meters forward from where he should have been. Yeah, no, no, well, I, I didn't even notice how wrong his positioning was. But I mean, Brown just was—he didn't have anyone. Um, yeah, no, he, I agree. Yeah. Look, to me, that's a fifty-fifty. Mm. They both shared the responsibility, but the set, the next one, yeah, completely comes where he came in. He shouldn't have come in. Yes, and then he gave that penalty to the Bulls that mm. drove them down where they could just drive over the line. And having said that, how could the force go into that game having not done loads of work on their defensive mall? And if they did, they didn't do very good work because the balls all day. It yeah. was like men v boys. No, it wasn't good. Every was it? time, every time they went for a driving mall, the force just looked like they thought, "What's this? We've mm. never seen this before." Mm. No, that was that, that was pretty that was pretty dis- disappointing, and it was uh, amazing. The, the Bulls didn't do it more often, to be honest. Um, I think they figured it out by the end of the game that they could do that all day. Um, alrighty, so that's that, they were the main uh, Aussie games. Um, I think the only thing we didn't mention, I think Hugh, didn't you? You wanted to do a little review. Neither myself nor Scott have actually watched the, uh, the that last Stafford derby, but uh, <laughs> didn't you? Well, I'll, I'll, well, I might save it for my article tomorrow. Okay. Uh, I don't want to uh, ruin the surprise when I get stuck into the Sharks and the Storm. It's 12-6 uh, was the scrolling of that game, and it was 80 minutes of my life that I'm not going to get back, and I'm sad about that. Oh, great. Well, I've got a couple of South African people on Twitter I want to uh, make, make sure... Uh, well, actually, I saw Joel Wynn tweet that he only got through the first 10 minutes, so that's a good sign that uh, I'm on the track. Well, don't worry. I've got a couple of others that you can send that on to um, <laughs> as well who give us um, stick. Um, right. So any other kind of uh, big talking points that have since come out uh, from the weekend? I'm trying to think. It's a bit of a s- slow rugby news week otherwise, isn't it? Yeah, only a couple of injuries come up today with Cliffy Parler's the other one. You mentioned Kurtley Bill, but Cliffy Parler's going to be out with ankle injury. I'm not sure of the severity. The, knowing why Cliff Parler, they'll say it's two weeks and we won't see him for about three months. Yeah. Uh, but uh, he's hoping that's not the case because the Tars do rely on him a lot. And Australia does too. So that's one that we want to get better. But um, especially with such a big game this week, it's a bit of a blow for the Tars. Yeah, I'm not even sure I know who backup eight would be there now. I'd suggest it would be Lepetti Tamani. Mm. Um, yeah. But they might well do something like the only other option I would think would be to put Sita Tamani into the second row, push Chapman to the blind side and put Dennis to eight. But yeah. I'm not sure whether. I think Tum- um, Checker seems to have a lot of faith in Lepetti Tamani. He gets on fairly early. So I think that might be what they'll do. Okay. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. That's uh, an option is to put Chapman to eight and leave Dennis at six. Yeah, yeah. Well, Chapman I mean, has played a fair bit of eight. Yeah, he's got his he's uh, quite uh, utility, isn't he, Chapman? Actually, he's played a lot, lot yep. of different roles there. Um, okay, but otherwise, I think it's pretty quiet on the outrage front. Can't think of much else. Kind of peaceful going on at the moment. All right. Well, it is only Monday night, so there you go. 
Um, so maybe what we'll do is jump on and just talk about the, the games we've got coming up then. Uh, we've got Hurricanes and the Crusaders, uh, which is going to be the very first game on Friday, uh, followed up by uh, the Rebels and the Reds. So Rebels going to be missing uh, Kirtley Beal, which has got to make you feel that that pretty much takes away any chance they have of winning, to be honest. Um, and, and either of you guys wanting to d- disagree there? I know you were saying, Scott, that there's a halfback problem at the Reds, but I'm, I get the feeling they're going to be able to work around that. Well, yeah, they, I think they can work around that more than they can work around the fact the loss of Beal. Mm. But, you know, the question will be, do they put uh, Jock at 10? If they put Jock at 10, I think the Reds will struggle more if they uh, leave Jock out at fullback or wherever they put him, then I don't think the Reds will have too much trouble with that. All right. I'll tip the Reds, but certainly not with 100% confidence. I, you know, they, they've been okay, but I was actually quite impressed by the way the Rebels played on Friday night. I thought you know, they let it slip a bit in the second half, but um, they showed some good signs. And even without Kirtley, I, I think... Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if this is another game like last week where for the Rebels where it'll be close for 60 minutes and, and, and the Reds might pull away in the last 20. But I certainly think they've got, they've got the side to match the Reds. I'm not sure if they can beat them, though. Okay. All righty. Um, so then moving into Saturday, uh, Highlanders are hosting the Cheetahs. Um, and then we've got uh, the uh, first, uh, the, well, the next Aussie game, which is the Brumbies hosting the Waratahs. So this should be the ding dong, and uh, I can't, be- you know, I can't believe the Brumbies haven't been focusing on on this for a while. Um, uh, so I think my prediction here is the Brumbies are going to absolutely take on that breakdown and uh, really expose what you've been talking about for the last few weeks, Scott. I would imagine. Um, you see it any differently? No, I can't see how the Waratahs can compete with the Brumbies, but then again, I can't see how any Australian team compete with the Brumbies at the moment. Mm. I can. I can see it, and I can see how the Tars <laughs> are going to put, put a score on them here. But, <laughs> but then, but but then you it'll... wake up, Hugh, and it's just a nice dream. <laughs> exactly. Um, no, nah, in all seriousness, I think this would be a great game. I can't wait for it. I mean, Canberra Stadium, first game... No, it won't be the first game at Canberra Stadium for the year. No, they've already played there. But even still, it'll be it'll be a packed house. Uh, the Canberra faithful are right behind their team. They're already seemingly taking on like the Reds fans a few years ago and nominating bench players for the Wallabies this far out. I mean, they're they're really confident. And um, the Tars, look, I, I don't know if they'd say they need a win here, but they certainly need a very good, another good performance to sort of uh, show people that. Um, you know the the last game wasn't a one off, and look, I th- I have a bit of faith that they'll provide it. I don't think they'll win. Uh, in all seriousness, I think the Brumbies have got too much class at the moment. But I'd also say that I don't think the Brumbies have been truly tested yet this season. I think um, neither the Reds nor the Rebels really fronted up to them a hundred percent. And I, I hope the Tars can give them that challenge this week, and, and we'll see quite whether they're up to it. And this will be a, hopefully a, a sort of a real test for them in in terms of the way the competition is going to play out this year. Okay. Well, we'll see how it goes. I mean, I, I uh, to your point, uh, Scott, uh, the Waratahs haven't really shown us that they've got the game just to turn this into a, a slug match at the breakdown. So it's going to be pretty fascinating to see what happens. And if maybe the Tars take the hint and just keep it away from the breakdown and, and keep that offload game going, we could see something 
entertaining. And if the if the Tars could, you know, do for two halves what they've done in the, the second half of each of their matches so far, um, it could be a very, very interesting match. I can't believe we've pretty much done a whole podcast, and I don't think we have talked about uh, the big F word, uh, Falau, have we? Um, I'm, oh. I'm not sure that's legal at the moment. Um, but the one thing I was going to say is that uh, I, someone else has mentioned, mentioned it during the, uh, since Saturday that you know, Falau looked well, a lot more potent from the wing. Um, and Vola Vola, I thought, uh, just everything seemed to gel a lot more. I think it was probably Lee Grant, actually, who was at the game uh, watching it and just saying that the whole shape seemed to be a lot better there. So I wonder if they'll think about uh, think about that, actually. Um, well, I think the thing about this week is, and I mean, I was only watching from the stands, but then I watched the replay, but this week he looks like a rugby player. I mean, he doesn't stick out like he did in, in the Reds game, and I certainly think I, I could see a lot of similarities between his game and Sonny Bill Williams'. So that yeah. off, he's got a real offloading instinct, and he tends to take the ball into the tackle with a view to getting one of those arms free, and that's what he did to set up the Waratahs' first try. Yeah, no, he did look a lot better. Anyway... Um, Tipping-wise, though, Scott, I've got you going with the Brumbies. Yeah. Uh, Hugh, are you able to? De- are you deluding yourself? Oh, look, I'll uh, see. There's a very big danger here of going, uh, taking the head over the heart, and I don't want to fall into the trap that Scott did uh, by tipping the Waratahs a few weeks ago. So I'm going to go. I'll go. I'll stick with the heart. I'll say the Waratahs. <laughs> okay, good one. Um, yeah, yeah, I'd probably have to go with my head on that one, so it's going to be the Brumbies, but uh, we'll see. I think it could be interesting. All righty, Stormers are then hosting the Chiefs. Uh, I guess that's overnight, and the Kings, the Sharks. Um, so we get to see the second outing of the Kings. Can they get another win? That would be interesting. Um, and then on Sunday, we've got the Blues um, uh, with the Bulls. Um, so uh, And that's uh, in Auckland, so the, the Bulls are... Um, are heading out there, so uh, a, a game for, for us to be able to watch, actually. So that'll be a good one to pick up on a Sunday. Um, right, I think that's just the, about it. The one thing I will say about the way the games have been going so far, when you watch New Zealand derbies, yeah, there's some exceptional rugby coming out of those games. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Way above anything South, uh, South Africa and Australian teams are putting out. Yeah, the, the only thing that I... It rankled me a bit, and I don't think it's just—I don't think it's just pride. Could be, um, which is you know the, the YouTube clip that's doing the rounds. I think we've probably even posted it somewhere, which is you know the best three minutes of or the most entertaining three minutes of rugby. Um, and I know you, Scott, you, you met, and there's a lot about it you've got to love. I mean, the realignment, the pace on the ball, the skill, the you know just the the, the, the draw and pass, and all the rest of it was excellent. I thought some of the fending was, you know, a lot of people getting arms through tackles, not a lot of dominant tackling going on. And then I also thought, interestingly enough, for New Zealand teams, and maybe it was just the pace of the clearance, but there wasn't a lot of competition going on at those rucks. I mean, you know, it was, the ball was zipping around um, pretty widely. So, I don't know. The, The only thing I was wondering about doing if I was going to be really curmudgeonly was have a look at, kind of missed tackles in that game versus others. <laughs> well, uh, we've had this problem before with YouTube videos and New Zealanders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I prob- that, well, that's, that's probably why I stopped. Uh-huh. I also thought probably if I looked into it, I probably would see that there was probably less tackles missed in that game. I don't know. Maybe I'm clutching at straws. Um, uh, we well, need to well, keep well, clutching well, though <laughs> because it's the only thing that keeps me makes me sleep at night if I believe... Yeah. That uh, the New Zealanders are going to be as good as they're showing in the early weeks, and I don't think we'll win the Bledisloe for another fifteen years. Yeah, exactly. 
Scott, you well, didn't... having looked, having yeah. looked at the games in a lot of detail, mm. they uh, yes, there are missed tackles. But when you're playing the game at that pace with those offloads mm. and guys changing their running line as they are, you're going to have missed tackles. Mm. If they were doing, if they were attacking like that against Australian teams, any Australian team, look out. Mm. Can they yeah. maintain that pace? Who knows. I, I must, but can I say I'm enjoying watching it? Like I love the Blues Crusaders game, I love the Highlanders Chiefs game. The second half where Chiefs cranked up against the Cheetahs, you know, some Ooh, great... yeah, watch out. Mm. The one thing I will say is I actually think uh, I agree that New Zealand conference has been brilliant, but I actually think the standard of the Aussie derbies has been better than it was last year. I seem to remember last year you had a couple of absolute shockers. Um, but this year so far, I mean, I thought the Force Rebels game to open open the season was a good one. The Brumbies Reds was intense. The Blues, I'm sorry, the Waratahs Rebels was a good one. I mean, there's two more this week and we'll get a further picture of how it's all going. But I think it's, you know, it's, a, it's an improvement at least. Yep. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll clutch at those straws. <laughs> but well, and let's see. We've we've got uh, a little while longer before we really feel the the wrath of the uh, of the other sides. Although obviously, you know, the, the Reds have polished up the oh, Hurricanes. We've got a hundred percent winning record against the Kiwis so far. So <laughs> yeah, actually, we might bring on a three nil blood low. We're probably going to be the bottom New Zealand team this year. <laughs> <laughs> well, we need. To, you, you think it's a bit too soon to put one of those widgets? Uh, on the <laughs> yes. side, saying you know, weeks <laughs> weeks of dominance over New Zealand teams, maybe not. <laughs> okay. Well, what have we got the following week? Waratahs, uh, Cheetahs. That doesn't, you know, Crusade. No, Reds, Force. No, no. We've still got a couple of weeks. We could put yeah. the widget up and last for a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Rent, rent, yeah. Rent. And you have to pay two weeks went on the on the dominance. Oh, no, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Round six, Waratahs, Blues. Well, that's oh, a two weeks will, that's will hit their stride by then. They'll be playing in front of 40,000 and yeah, it'll, be, yeah, uh, it'll be flogging. Yeah. <laughs> 40,000. Uh, actually, <laughs> the crowd figures are interesting. Auckland had over 30,000 for that game on Friday night. Um, Waratahs had, what was that, 11,000? 11, yeah. But it rained. Yeah. It didn't rain like it rained in Brisbane. We still had over 30,000. Yeah, yeah, you can't expect. What's well, going on with that Sydney crowd? <laughs> hey, I was there. It's not my problem. I was one of the few who turned up. Mate, it's dangerous in Sydney and rain like that. We were all advised to stay at home. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the traffic jams in Brisbane are horrendous when it rains. That's yeah. not an excuse. Yeah. No, quite seriously, what what's the membership of the TARS? Well, yeah. Look, there's obviously problems. I think it was very. You would have hoped with Falau, and the buzz has been pretty good here. It's not like there's a negative vibe about it, but um, I think the weather. What's the membership? Oh, the membership. I think it's. I think they said it's ten thousand this year. It's approximately ten. They got members plus one thousand. Yeah, well, but the members are the laziest bastards around. So it's often they're they're the problem. It's not (laughs) really. (laughs) Oh yeah. It's old blokes like Lee Grant who decide to leave at half-time. <laughs> no, no, it's not Lee. Lee's the most passionate okay. run out there, but there's uh, the legendary queue for the car park. It starts at about 15 minutes before the final hooter. Um, it's a classic Waratah oh. tradition. The, the, no matter what the scoreline is, there's blokes leaving it with that, at that point to beat the traffic. But anyway, that's another story. Mm. What was the soccer crowd on the weekend? Pardon? In 
what was the soccer crowd in Sydney on the weekend? Oh uh, well, it was on the central coast. It was. Um, I think they got 19,000. But as I said, I said on the forum, there was a discussion about this, that that was a top-of-the-table game late in the season to, you know, band, you know, teams that had huge sort of bandwagon following. So anyway, yeah, that's, that's the discussion for the forum because there's a good one going on there. Just as well, Michael Checker's got outside well because isn't his bonus based on crowd numbers? <laughs> Let's hope not. I don't know about that. <laughs> well, I, 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 somebody, somebody in the forum has made a claim that his contract is linked to crowd numbers. Oh gosh, you could Jesus. go. You could go hungry then. GCVP, <laughs> yeah, he's going to be wanting to uh, be praying for sunshine for the rest of the year then. Yeah, yeah, not good. But uh, I tell you, I mean, it would be interesting. Uh, that might be a question we can put to um, Jason Allen. Uh, next Monday is the next um, rugby networking meeting, um, which is a free meeting. It's at the Sydney Rugby Club. You need to register though. Um, there's a, I think it's Eventbrite is the uh, website you need to go on to, and you can find you can find the uh, the, the thing. It's, I think it kicks off at about five thirty, um, and you get down there, and uh, the bar's open. You, can, you know, you can buy the drinks. They've supplied party pies last time, um, and so you never know they could be on again. But um, it's uh, Jason Allen, CEO of the Waratahs, is giving the speech next Monday. Um, so um, that will be uh, a fascinating discussion. Might even see if we can hijack him for a, an interview, maybe for the for the Podslam. But maybe because of that, the Podslam might be a day might be a day late uh, for those regular listeners. Um, and we'll see. You're gonna have to come down for that, Hugh, aren't you? Uh, I might have to uh, show my face, which is a rare thing with these things. But um, yeah, yeah, no, Jason Allen certainly certainly. Be a great bug to sit down and have a chat with. So yeah, yeah. See, see our mighty leader. Um, <laughs> all right, isn't think... he the anonymous man? What radio? Yes. No, that's no, he's Jason the anonymous Allen. man, isn't he? he well, as I said, I mean, let's just hope it's not raining in Sydney because the crowd might be low. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys, time to finish up. Um, thanks for coming on again tonight. Great to have a chat. Yeah, cheers, guys. Nice. And uh, thanks, thanks, for, thanks for everybody who's downloaded and let us come in your ears once again. And we'll, um, we might not see you next Tuesday. It might be next Wednesday. But um, uh, bye for now. Right there, right there.